Judy Shelton has been appearing on C-SPAN since 1989. Her first visit was on book notes to discuss her book titled The Coming Soviet Crash. She made some predictions we'll ask her about in just a moment. During the past 33 years since her first appearance on C-SPAN, Judy Shelton has been in and out of politics. She worked for a time with three presidential candidates, including Bob Dole, Ben Carson, and Donald Trump. It was President Trump who nominated her to serve on the board of the Federal Reserve. Her selection to the Fed was controversial, and eventually President Joe Biden's administration withdrew her nomination in February of 2021. Judy Shelton, when you think back to what happened in February of 2021 when you were not voted on the Federal Reserve Board, what what's your memory of that period? Well, I I guess I'll I'll start by saying what my overall conclusion was. Um, it's that it was a positive experience, but I must admit there were excruciating moments, and at times it was extremely frustrating uh, as a process, and um, and the way I I found that my views were being presented to the public. I, I guess I, I hate to be a victim, but there were, there were certainly times when I felt that I was treated unfairly and um, I was willing to defend my views, but I didn't think I would get a fair hearing. How much did you want to be on the Fed board in the first place? Mixed emotions. Um, I, I considered it a great honor to be nominated and I was very grateful to the the Trump administration for having the confidence in me to put my name forward. I I never have characterized myself as a mainstream economist. I feel that I I would have brought a scholarly and historical perspective to um, the meaning of having your monetary unit perform as a reliable store of value. And I was also very focused on the international consequences of the dollar being the dominant global reserve currency and and how important it would be to defend the monetary integrity of U.S. currency. I, I looked forward to collegial discussions. I didn't see myself as a rabble rouser per se, but I'm, I'm also not a shrinking violet. And, um, I, I know the fed as an institution quite well. Um, I, since Greenspan was in, uh, I, I was a regular visitor, um, and had many conversations with him during his time as chairman. And, and afterwards I was rather close to Paul Volcker and participated regularly in conferences with him, often sitting together at international monetary forums. So I felt well-versed in the personalities that were so critical in defining monetary policy and monetary theory. I felt fortunate to have had many in-depth discussions with them. And so I looked forward to bringing that background and, and knowledge and experience to participating myself at um, the Monetary Policy Making Decision Meetings, the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee meetings that are held eight times a year, plus the ongoing daily experience of, of working at the Fed as a governor of the Federal Reserve Board. One of my goals is to uh, ask you questions for the average person, me, not uh, people that are involved in all the intricacies of uh, the Fed so we can better understand it. And I wanted the audience to know also that in our C-SPAN archive, you can go watch Judy Shelton in 1989, the first interview that I did with you. You can watch the second one in 2009, 20 years later. And then now here we are 13 years later. And it's uh, to follow up on all that and what you've said in the past some and then um, – this experience, uh, help us understand what happens to someone when they're nominated for this a job like this. Uh, how long was that process? 
Uh, well, first, let me say, Brian, I never would consider you an average person. I think you're an exceptional individual, and I thank you for all you do to help illuminate these issues for all of us. And I appreciate also um, learning when people can break things down to a level that, that enables me to do so from their comments. Um, my personal experience started uh, while I was still uh, serving the administration. Uh, I was in London where I was the U.S. Director to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And um, um, that was a very uh, demanding and, and fulfilling position, and I wasn't looking to, to change it. But at the time when the Trump administration began considering candidates for the Federal Reserve Board, I was aware my name had long been floated. And um, and so I, I received a message that uh, if I had any interest in that position, this came from uh, Larry Kudlow, who was the head of the National Economic Council for President Trump, that I should um, visit the United States and make the case. And uh, maybe I would be considered in the potential pool of candidates. I did that, went back to London. Um, and then uh, various people were, were put forward. Um, Herman Cain was put forward. I know him quite well. I thought he would be extremely, extremely effective uh, because he's an expert on the restaurant and service economy. And I thought who would have better experience in, in informing these very high level scholarly discussions at the Federal Reserve on on the real experiences of people, especially we see now after COVID how valuable his input would have been about um, the employment activity and decisions people would make under COVID restrictions. Uh, he also had served at the, I think the Kansas City uh, District Federal Reserve as chairman of their citizen committee. Bottom line, I thought uh, Steve Moore, who was also put forward, would have been extremely helpful, very, very gifted economist with wonderful instincts and judgment about how you have a pro-growth economy and the role of stable money in bringing that about. But those candidates didn't go much further. I think they were treated rather brutally by the press, and then it seemed it was my turn. Um, and I met with the president uh, for, all, for all the press reports that I was such a close advisor. It was the one and only time during President Trump's um, four-year term that uh, I, I met with him in the Oval Office. And that was the same day that Chris Waller, whose name was also being put forward as a Federal Reserve potential nominee for the Board of Governors, he had a 40, 45-minute one-on-one um, uh, -on -one with the president. And then I was next. And I uh, sat down in the Oval Office. There was a note-taker. There was uh, the president behind his desk, and then Larry Kudlow sat in a side chair. And it was an extremely business-like um, interview. He had my resume in front of him. He had various things I'd written in front of him. He, he never made any demands or suggested in any way um, how, I would, how I would vote. As, as a member of the committee, he just really asked about my qualifications and past experience and just overall thematic type type issues. And um, and as I left, um, he just I heard him say to his note taker, um, I think you can put out a tweet that um, lists her qualifications and that she's one of the candidates we're going to put forward. And I raced back. I'd come into D.C. to stay overnight, and my husband met me um, back at the hotel. And um, within about an hour, I saw it had been tweeted out that my name, as well as Chris Waller's name, were being put forward, tweeted out by President Trump um, to be considered to join the Board of Governors. From then on, I would say um, uh, there were – I was besieged with um, – uh, calls from uh, reporters. Um, I started seeing my name on, on TV and in newspapers as a controversial candidate. Meantime, I went back to London and, and went back to my job. And um, uh, the next step, I guess, was uh, as, as I had to then go through the process, 
Um, that included uh, another interview with the FBI, but that's that's what you have to do. And I'd already had one for my EBRD job, but uh, so I had another interview, and uh, I have zero issues. You had to file all the papers again, all your financial holdings. I, I did all the paperwork, no problem. It's rather. Um, it's a big job. I'm sure it's torturous, depending on what your holdings are. But um, bottom line, I had zero issues on that. And then it was a waiting game. And and um, so I left my job with some regrets, but looking forward to what I thought would be uh, an interesting confirmation process. I, I wouldn't say I was exceptionally ambitious for the position, but I could see the benefit of the platform. That is, I wanted to talk about things that I've long discussed in my writings about the need for money to serve as a reliable and honest measure um, and, a, and a dependable store of value. I, I thought that it would be nice to have the opportunity to to speak about those issues. But in the meantime, I was told, don't engage with the press because um, the senators you'll be interviewing with prefer that you they have control over the dialogue. They will ask you their questions, and they don't want you to be accommodating uh, the press ahead of their own interviews with you. And therefore, I, I realize you lose the ability to influence the narrative, and I was uncomfortable with that, but that was the advice I was getting. Um, it seemed like it took too long to me for for the actual hearing, but I guess I just wanted to move on with it. I was kind of in limbo. That took a few months from the summer of 2019 through the fall, but in January, I was formally uh, nominated and within a couple of weeks had my hearing before Senate banking. I had my interviews with senators. Um, some of whom I thought, well, I'll never get along with this person like Sherrod Brown. But we had a great meeting in his office. And so it shows how naive I was at at the actual hearing. He was just vicious, <laughs> I thought. And I thought, who is this person? And why did I walk out of there thinking I explained all of his questions? And then he turned around and I thought was was quite brutal in his questioning and unfair. But my other conversations with both Democrats and Republicans were extremely gratifying. And um, and I went into the hearing thinking, well, I guess some people are going to go through a kind of a, a vigorous um, attack. It seemed like there might be something sort of coordinated, but I'll just have to answer the best I can. My family, meantime, came in from Los Angeles the, the day before, including my, my mother, who was um, in her mid-90s, and my husband and brothers and sisters and, and family. So I felt that was great, but it was a little tough to sit there and be um, berated by some of these questions from senators. And, and then as you started to respond, they would say, and my time is up, and kind of hand it off to the next one. Let me so, let me interrupt. That's a very long answer, but but that was that was the downside of the process. Let, let me interrupt to to tell you, you, as you know, and the audience that they can go back and watch this hearing. It's in the C-SPAN archives. And your your point about Sherrod Brown, um, I think, isn't he? Wasn't he the ranking member on the Democratic side? Yes, that's right. And so he starts off. Does he? And he might have had more than five minutes. Sometime the chairman and the ranking member have more than five minutes. But um, when he started laying down the things that he disagreed with you on, what was your reaction as you sat there? Um, I I thought it it went downhill so fast when when the chairman of of the committee, uh, Chair Crapo from Idaho, first introduced me. Uh, that was that was fine, and I gave my statement. And um, he closed out his opening remarks by saying, "I'm entering into the record a Wall Street Journal editorial, the lead editorial that had come out uh, the prior day, entitled The War on Judy Shelton." And I thought, "Whoa, <laughs> 
I guess he's entering that into the record. Um, and it made me, it, it kind of had a chilling impact on me. I was very grateful that et, for that editorial, but it reminded me how much of this, this judgment that was supposed to be left up to the senators thinking for themselves was being fought in the press. The um, editorials from the New York Times and from the Washington Post, I just thought were were over the top. And um, and I, I I I even I remember there was one um, um, making me out to be uh, the gold bug, and um, which was seen as a you know in the context of wacko and and completely. Um, inappropriate for someone who might serve at our central bank. And uh, since I had this long friendship with Alan Greenspan, I emailed it to him that morning and I, and, and I wrote something. It was his first line of a paper he'd written in 1966, which said uh, hysterical. There seems to be a hysterical antagonism toward anyone who, who talks um, favorably about the gold standard. And he wrote back, Within a couple hours, he emailed back that, yes, he'd seen this. And um, and he said, these are really strange times. And if the and if gold is has nothing to do with um, being a, a monetary asset for the U.S. government, why does our government hold so much of it? And I thought, see, what, what the press doesn't understand or people who try to car- caricature someone like myself is that at the level of of Greenspan or Volcker or say my mentor would be uh, Robert Mundell. These are uh, and, and I was a neighbor at the Hoover Institution down the hall from Milton Friedman. The real greats on monetary policy always talk talk about gold and and about floating versus fixed rates and about what worked in prior international monetary systems and and what is what is the role of of gold or do we need it or can we get by with a pure fiat system they they speak easily about these issues or about the Bretton Woods system for Paul Volcker who always thought we were going to go back to something like that a gold convertible dollar anchored international monetary system and and I just thought it's it's ironic to me that these people who would judge my capabilities really have no sense of monetary history or the facility with which um, these issues are discussed at the very top level of people who actually do and have been in the arena experiencing um, the trade-offs in in having a central bank manipulate the interest rate to to exert economic outcomes versus having a a say a very strict monetary rule through some level of gold convertibility these are very scholarly and and issues and make for fascinating debates among true monetary specialists this is my observation there's seven members of the board of the federal reserve most of them the average person never heard of and if you go into their backgrounds, almost all of them are academics at some point. Um, why did Chris Waller, uh, who was sitting there at the table with you, uh, they did not attack him. They didn't go after him in any way. Why did they pick you over him? And he is a Republican, as you were at the table. And can you do you have any theory on that? Well, I think that. Um I was an easier target. He he's an exceptional researcher and really ran the research department for the St. Louis Fed. And I think uh, actually they would have loved to have had uh, James Bullard, who is the president of that district reserve branch of the Federal Reserve System. And um, he wasn't interested in the position. But Chris Waller was a very good surrogate for that way of thinking which I would say, you know, monetary policy is supposed to be nonpartisan, but I suppose that would come closest to saying a Republican president might prefer a, a James Bullard approach, which was then embodied in Chris Waller. I think Chris is quite good um, on his own count, but um, I think he was less controversial because there was someone who was already participating um, um, on the 
monetary policy decision-making committee meetings that would be Bullard, who was his boss, as he was always quick to acknowledge. And, um, and he represented a view that was already being represented at the Federal Reserve versus, I guess, I was seen as more of a loose cannon. Could you imagine? I mean, these are 14 year appointments. Uh, what do you think of that idea? And can you imagine yourself sitting there for 14 years where most of the publicity goes to the chairman? Well, um, it's true. They the 14 year term, I would have been fulfilling the rest of Janet Yellen's term. And um, uh, they have such long terms because the Federal Reserve, when it was established, in uh, 1913 was was meant to be um, somewhat insulated from political influence. And by having long staggered terms, I suppose, just like judgeships, um, the idea is is that you're not running to be reappointed. In a way, it doesn't make sense because um, the chair, who does have by far the most influence, um, has a four year term. And, and does have to be um, go through the process every four years if they're going to be reappointed. They have to go back through the hearings. And, and so there are many actual aspects of Federal Reserve independence that when you look at them a little more closely, um, don't really pan out. For example, I might as well mention this at this point, the Fed um, likes to say that it's independent because it does not get its funding from Congress through the constitutional process of, of budgeting, um, that instead it lives off its, its own income, off of its own portfolio, because that's always been the case. But that is about to switch, I would say, in, in the next six months or so, um, if not sooner, because the Fed is going to be having to pay out more interest which is because that's how it raises interest rates. It pays commercial banks and, and hedge funds not to take money out of their checking accounts at the Fed, and that's going to get more and more expensive for the Fed because we're talking about uh, $5.6 trillion in cash sitting at the Fed on deposit that they're now going to be paying a significant amount of interest on. Um, and at the same time, the Fed's portfolio is now delivering close to an amount uh, of income to the Fed that will be lower than that. Therefore, they will have to turn to Treasury and say, you're going to have to cover our operating expenses. And that's going to be a new position for the Fed. And so I'm thinking there will be future discussions. Are they now not so independent? Because they do have to turn to the federal government to fund their, their operations. Um, uh, they also think they're insulated. I, I think the idea of Fed independence also has turned into a convenient excuse because the Fed does not criticize the budget priorities of Congress or pending legislation, even if it will exacerbate inflation potentially. Uh, they will not criticize the president. And then it's easy for um Congress and the president to indulge in fiscal measures, um, knowing that if the Fed tries to counter it with high interest rates, they say, I won't criticize the Fed. I'm preserving its independence. So it becomes a mutually beneficial way for neither side to criticize the other. One of the things I read is that uh, people have tried over the years to find out how many. I mean, there's there something like 23,000 people that work in the system. They don't work at the Fed uh, headquarters, but you can't find out how much they make. Now, explain the relationship between the Federal Reserve banks to the Federal Reserve Board here in Washington, and should all that be transparent? And isn't it possible that the presidents of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis or whatever makes more money than the Jay Powell does, which is about uh, twenty two hundred and three thousand dollars a year? Well, in fact, they do. The district bank presidents do make more money. Um, I didn't I don't I think that's public information. Maybe it's not easily available, but um, I I'm certainly aware of it. And but through public means. But, yes, the district bank presidents do make are paid more than the members of the uh, board of governors. So that may have even figured into his thinking. Um, there are 400 uh, Ph.D. economists who work at the Fed. 
Um, I did see an interesting uh, study that showed that 90% of the employees of the Federal Reserve System uh, vote Democrat. I, I thought that's interesting because uh, there, there's been a lot of talk about the need for diversity at the Fed. And I think the only diversity that really matters is intellectual. Um, I, I think the fixation on gender um, or race is very misplaced and extremely unhelpful and sort of accomplishes the precise opposite result that one would hope for. Um, because then if you search for someone based on those superficial issues, it's, it's almost as if you're saying, because if they have those, we know they're going to think a certain way. So for me, um, intellectual diversity and a, and a way to get a, away from the group think at the Fed is much to be sought. And um, so that, that is an issue. But as far as the salaries, um, I don't think it's a secret, even though I don't know how easily accessible it is. You probably have to dig more. Certainly anyone who is put up for the position, their finances are laid out there for all the world to see. Every stock holding and uh, every bit of compensation, including, I think, um, one makes all of $400 if you have a, a lead opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. But I had to uh, get that down to the penny. And um, so the, they really scrutinize your own finances and then put them out for public um, viewing. Um, so about employees, I, I, I couldn't say. <laughs> Other employees. I, I will say you were asking about the process. We didn't get much beyond when uh, I was successfully, but by the skin of the teeth, voted uh, favorably out of that hearing. 13 and 12? uh, Yeah, the one on, um, yeah, on February 13th in um, 2020. So you can imagine that in the context of COVID, really shutting down government within the month. But um, even though it ended up being delayed, uh, every Democrat voted against me. But there were 13 Republicans, and they um, voted for me, all of them. And uh, there were three who'd had some reservations, but it turned out I, I met with each and spoke with each, and uh, all of them, after speaking with me, voted for me on the Republican side. And so I was favorably reported and now heading into full Senate confirmation. Um, because of COVID, at the time of the Senate vote, um, there were Senator Grassley, um, Senator Scott from Florida. Uh, they were out with COVID. They were both going to vote for me. Um, Mitt Romney, who to this day, I have no idea why he was against me. Uh, I graduated from the University of Utah. Uh, I had supported Mitt Romney when he ran for president. Um, I thought my ideas would be very much aligned with, with his. I, I couldn't, he wouldn't meet with me. And um, uh, he was asked, I think, to do something called pairing with Senator Grassley, who missed my vote. It was the first time in, I think, 20 years and 5,000 votes, some incredible numbers there, that he had to miss a vote because the night before, the vote for me, he, uh, he came down with COVID. And, um, uh, so I actually, uh, missed by one vote because then, uh, it, um, McConnell had to reverse his vote in order to be able to bring my nomination up a second time. And, um, and I received a call from vice president Pence later that day saying he was suited up and ready to break the tie. Um, and and was crushed that it hadn't worked out. I later learned that two of the Democrats, who, of course, voted against me, two senators from Connecticut, were also supposed to be quarantined under COVID, but they came to Washington anyway that day, voted against me, and also Kamala Harris, who had not voted since becoming the vice presidential nominee. She also flew down just to do the vote against me. So I felt that a lot of forces were aligned and that they politicized my nomination far more than than any statements or any positions I had taken. 
Um, so that was also, I guess, disappointing for me to learn that those things had happened. Well, you've been around a lot of these politics and things for a long time. And usually there's somebody, some organization that's behind this kind of thing. Somebody that's feeding the New York Times or the Washington Post or vice versa if it's the Republicans. Did you ever find, figure out, find out who's behind so, so uh, strongly opposing you? I saw organizations. I would regularly see very, very nasty things said about me, and I would try to find out. I saw that some were being funded through grants from very large Democrat donors. Um, most disappeared. The websites that were tweeting and, and writing things, I later, within the next year, it would you would just get a empty uh, website discontinued. So I don't know about that. I will say I was distressed to see when, you know, the... I met with Jay Powell. Uh, it hadn't been scheduled, but of course, during my orientation, um, I spent days at the Federal Reserve, really enjoyed it, met with the other members of the Board of Governors and was told, we welcome you here. We need you here. I felt I would have a, a great reception and um, was already getting involved in some of the issues before the Fed. And everyone seemed very forthcoming. One day when I was doing one of those orientation days, Suddenly they said, your schedule's changed, and Jay Powell would like like to um, meet with you. I said, great, and it was scheduled for five minutes. I think we spoke closer to 40, and he asked how it was going. And at first I thought he seemed slightly wary. He says, um, "Are you? Are, how do you feel about your um, upcoming hearing? And I think I laughed and said, I'm terrified, and he laughed. And um, But what I later saw... Um, when he was, when Powell was questioned on various occasions during his normal testimony before Congress, um, a, a Democrat congresswoman said, oh, what do you think about Judy Shelton? And he said, well, of course, I couldn't comment on a candidate. But then he proceeded to malign what he thought were my views on a gold standard and said the Fed, if they had adopted a gold standard, could no longer um, try to have price stability and maximum employment, it would only be targeting the price of gold. I've never said that. I've, I've actually said having a gold price rule would be a mistake. So I thought, I, I don't, what do you do when the chair of the Fed mischaracterizes your position? At the same time, they're saying they're not commenting. And then I, I saw because the chairman's schedule is released months after um, concurrent events, he made a number of phone calls to senators on the day before and the day of that hearing when my name was being put before the entire Senate for confirmation, including he uh, he called Mitt Romney rather late the night before. And, and it was Mitt Romney who then refused to pair when Grassley um, ended up catching COVID and it, and it becoming public um, uh, that night and the next morning that he would be missing my vote. And I wondered when Romney did the very um, discourteous maneuver of refusing to pair, that is, I guess, in the Senate, if if two senators in the same party, if one, for some reason beyond his control, can't vote, then one who was going to vote the opposite way as a courtesy also doesn't vote so that it's just neutralized. He wouldn't do that for the longest serving member of the Senate. He wouldn't do that for, for Grassley. And I just, I, I wondered why reporters didn't look into this flurry of calls between Chairman Powell. I, there were so many rumors that somehow President Trump wanted me to replace the chairman and was going to pull some maneuver by elevating me. That was never discussed um, with between myself and the president or anyone in the White House, I, I found it um, outlandish to suggest and damaging to suggest um, it because it might influence senators. Um, and at bottom line, I don't know if Powell believed that in some way, but I I wondered if he didn't quietly 
lobby against me. And I, if I'm wrong, um, I, I apologize. But I have reason to think that he made a personal call on Romney's cell phone. And uh, I wondered why people didn't pursue that line of inquiry, because I think that would have been very improper, as he had acknowledged, to influence the process in any way. Uh, there was another Republican, Alexander, Lamar Alexander, who who didn't vote against me, but didn't vote for me. And I saw right after the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial saying, I hope when Shelton's nomination comes up again before the I mean, Trump was voted out. So that couldn't be an issue anymore. But before um, the inauguration of President Biden, my my name could come up again and be voted on. Um, and it wasn't clear if Alexander would vote for me or against me at that point. The journal urged him to vote for me. And I saw within three days of that, he had a private lunch with Chairman Powell at the Fed. And looking at phone records, in two years, I saw only one senator was invited to a private lunch at the Fed. So maybe it's coincidence, but I I really wondered if um, if if there was some lobbying from from the Fed among senators. And uh, I just wish reporters had been more curious because it would set a terrible, terrible precedent for future nominees. How much of this was really about Donald Trump? I this is, a, I guess, a yes and no. I like to think it was. I like to think it was about Trump in the sense that I don't think uh, I I was seen as I have. I, it, if my views are partisan, it's only for pro-growth programs, which tend to be promoted more by Republicans in the sense that I don't think it's all about monetary policy. I think the Fed's job is to provide a stable monetary foundation, but I think trade policy, energy policy, and particularly the fiscal measures of lower taxes and less regulation, I think those are extremely influential in terms of of promoting productive economic growth. And and so I, I do strongly carry and, and have long discussed in my own um, writings the importance of those views. But um, I don't think I've been particularly politically active when when asked. I, I have, um, you know, provided advice or counsel uh, to candidates, but um, I'm not a political activist per se. I always thought I had a scholarly approach. And and it's the academic reasoning that impresses me more than any political lobbying when it comes to legislation. What would you say if somebody called you in the future and says, I've just been nominated for a particular position or maybe even before then? What would you say in the way of warning them of the negative part of all this? Um, I, you know, I, I. I don't know if other people would have my experience. I think that you have to be open-minded. If you're interested in public service, if you're willing to, to go through the, the crucible of the process, um, I think you should definitely follow your heart and do it. I wouldn't be scared off. Um, at the same time, you, you know, you have to later decide whether you're reconciled to not being able to defend yourself. Um, because I, I felt my reputation was just being dragged through the, the mud. And, and there I was um, wanting to, to be a good nominee and, and not engage. Um, and yet uh, I had one expert who was a spokesman for Treasury, in fact, who said to me, no, no one will defend you. In fact, um, you do need to defend yourself no matter what they tell you. But um, but I decided that in the end, if I if I made it through and I was able to serve, that that would be far more important than then I would have a chance to to show what I think um, as someone who's now involved in the process. And I have great respect for people who are in the arena and involved in the process. 
And I would I would state my views, but I also understand um, why the Fed seeks consensus and the importance of having messaging to the public about um, forward guidance that's meaningful and not all over the place. I, I think I would have been a, a team player, but at the same time in private discussions at the Fed would have asserted my my views fairly strongly. So uh, I would encourage anyone to to say be prepared for the slings and arrows. But in the end, and again, why I say overall it was a positive experience, during my hearing, the line of which I'm most proud was one senator said, I know you've been responding to very leading questions this morning. And he said, and I hope you realize much of it's been orchestrated. But he goes, I just want to give you a moment to say, what do you believe in? And I was able to say, I believe in the constitutional uh, responsibility for for the integrity of U.S. currency, um, uh, everything that's stated, uh, that the currency is supposed to be a measure. Uh, it's, it's stated in the same line, um, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, that defines Congress having the ability to, to lay out what the uh, official weights and measures would be for our nation. It's in the same sentence, and to define the uh, to regulate the money. And so it was seen as likewise a, a measure that people would use to plan their lives and their endeavors. So I went back to that and was able to say in my hearing, so if people go back and watch the hearing, they'll see a lot of fireworks. But I did have a chance to say that I see money as a moral contract between the government and its citizens. And that that is the re- view I would wish to take into um, my service as a member of the Board of Governors should the Senate decide to confirm me. As I was watching the hearings, there was a gentleman over your left shoulder who uh, <laughs> had a little gray beard, and I was guessing that's your husband. I'm guessing you're you're right. <laughs> and uh, I think it was hard on him to hear some of these things. Um, but probably at one point, when when I was being goaded by Senator Brown, he said, are you going to take orders um, from uh, President Trump <laughs> on on how you're going to vote? And I think I, I said, no one tells me what to do. <laughs> I later thought I should have made a carve out. Well, my husband does have some influence there. He's the, someone I would always listen to. But um, I wanted to strongly make the point that um, I think everyone has a right to criticize the Fed. But I I think members who, who get to that point, and certainly I consider myself someone as being fully capable of making my own decisions, and um, no one could possibly uh, dictate to me how I would respond on any vote coming before me as a, a monetary policymaker. When did you know you weren't going to get it? Honestly, not until um, when were the elections in Georgia? January 5th, I guess. Um, I thought there was still a strong chance that um, my name, uh, that they would vote again. And um, uh, the Trump administration did resubmit my, my nomination, which they have to do after the close of the year. They had to resubmit any open nominations upon which action had not yet been taken. And my name was resubmitted as a candidate. But when the U.S. or when the Georgia election took off two Republican senators, I thought, well, that's the end. By the way, you mentioned this earlier, the five-minute rule in the Senate, watching We've done it for years. We've been doing this for 43 years. When you watch it, the five-minute rule comes up every time somebody testifies. You watch the members begin to push, push, push to get an answer quicker, quicker, quicker. I just want a yes or a no. What's it feel like sitting in the chair when you know they only have five minutes? Well, I guess you get a little bit um, cynical as you get used to it because some of them – spend uh, four minutes and 40 seconds making a speech that may or may not have much to do with with the issues at hand in terms of of uh, your suitability to serve uh, on the board of governors of the federal reserve um 
some of some of it, I would say, is a form of bullying, which I wouldn't mind if I thought it was honest intellectual discussion. But um, if you're pressed into yes or no, yes or no, without uh, being able to explain your reasoning or given a hypothetical um, that that you first have to wrap your mind around and say, wait, what are you suggesting? Because if you're saying there's this and this, what about this and that? And they're just saying, nope, what would you do? And I thought without context, um, you, you find yourself kind of backing up, backing up. And then the next thing you know, um, there's some pithy statement and it's over. But that, that was, that was um, demoralizing. I, I did find myself in that position a couple of times and thought I, maybe I, I should have handled this better. Sometimes I didn't see it coming and, and maybe that threw me. But then when I would hear a softball question pitched to my colleague, I just thought, what what is going on here? And um, but again, you have to just kind of like in a, a tennis match, I guess, slough off what just happened and and gear up for the next question and be back to saying, uh, yes, Senator, thank you for the opportunity. And here is what I would do. So I kept trying to redo it. And, and amazingly to myself. When it was over, I felt good about it because I knew it had been what would later be called contentious or bloodbath. Or I saw various write-ups of my hearing even that day on CNBC. But I, in my own mind, I knew I, I, I could not have done better. That is, I, had, I knew in my heart I had done the very best I could. I brought my best effort. And I was, I had a sense of being grateful for the opportunity. I really did. Even though I remember Senator Warren, oh, the night before she, I, she would ask me to answer um, 15 questions at a time when I'm preparing for the hearing and her letter demanding uh, answers would be leaked to the post before I was even given a copy. And then I'd be getting reporters calling saying, uh, what do you think of, of uh, the statement by um, Senator Warren? And I would be like, what statement, what letter? So I guess the tactics um, made me a little bit, um, as I say, cynical about some of the theatrics and the maneuvering by politicians. But still, it was it was an experience from which I learned a lot and, and probably, probably, I guess I'll sound like a, I don't know, goody two shoes, but I really do believe things work out for a reason. And uh, maybe doors opened that maybe I would have had to be more circumspect as a member of, of the board of governors. And now I feel I'm somewhat liberated to say things. I, I really believe in the interests of our nation's uh, future. And for the sake of, I hope more sound money and sound finances. And as we go forward, Couple of quick technical questions on the process. Um, of the twenty-five members of the committee, how many would not meet with you? Um, I don't. I I think all of them were willing to meet with me. It was uh, Romney was not on the committee. He was just a senator at large. He's not a member of the Senate Banking Committee. So um, the uh, the ones who were members of the committee, I. I I, those meetings were scheduled for me, and I had sort of a um, liaison assigned by the Federal Reserve, and so I was always accompanied by someone uh, who would take me to these meetings and arrange these meetings, who was an employee of the Federal Reserve, as well as then I would be met at the office by someone representing the um, Presidential Personnel Office who nominated me. So those were all set up. And I mean, I welcomed it, but those were scheduled by uh, other forces beyond my my personal involvement. And so I, I was unaware of anyone. I think anyone who wanted to meet with me, I certainly was eager to meet with. And I'm not aware. Of, I don't think it's ever put to them. Do you refuse? It was only after I had been voted out of committee and was going before the Senate that um uh, apparently, there was a very strong effort to meet with to have me meet with Mitt Romney. Uh, Larry Kudlow told me he personally asked 
um, and was turned down. I, I even called my old friend um, Paul Ryan, who had been his vice presidential uh, mate, running mate with Romney, and said, I, I don't understand why Romney would be opposed to me. Do you have any any way could you prevail upon him? But I think his answer was more that he wasn't so close to Romney anymore and that just he didn't have a way to make that happen. The last question on process. Um, I know th- this has started to happen a number of years ago, and I just wondered if you were it was recommended to you or it was just your natural way of doing things. But you would thank each senator for the question. You would say, thank you, senator, for that question. This is something when we started again years ago that people didn't do. And I wonder if this is something that people are advising uh, nominees for oh, these kind uh, of positions. Yes. Yes, it's overly um, – I, I don't care for that. Uh, I doubt that I would ever go before um, a nominating uh, committee – I mean a nomination hearing committee again. Um, I would not be that way. Uh, I was – I felt grateful to have been nominated. As I say, I considered it an honor. So when I was being advised um, – they even have mock sessions to help you practice. You are told that all that matters is being polite and almost subservient. And every response to every question, it's rote. Thank you for that question, Senator. I found it a bit sickening, to tell you the truth. And um, But nevertheless, uh, as a candidate, I felt because they asked us, to to behave that way uh, and that that was expected and and that our only goal was not to antagonize the senators uh, by doing anything other than being uh, courteous to the max that I must follow that policy and even that it, it, when you're faced with insulting questions from from in my case the, the Democratic senators for the most part, uh, that that the Republican senators would would mark you down if you were rude to their their um, compatriots in that committee, that it wouldn't be welcomed um, by by the Republican side either if you were anything less than scrupulously polite to the senators and and responding automatically with thank you for that question, Senator so and so was required. We're running out of time. I I'm want to. I'm, go, I'm go normally ahead. not that obsequious, Brian. <laughs> Polite, but not obsequious. <laughs> I started to say that back in 1989, when when we I first met you and we sat down for a book notes interview, uh, we were talking about the Soviet Union, and uh, this was '89. Keep that in mind. We're going to run a clip of what you said then, and I want you to uh, uh, respond. What do you think of the Soviet Union? I think that um, it's an idea that went wrong. Um, economically, I, I think it's doomed. Um, I, and I, I don't say that with glee. Uh, I've only been to the Soviet Union uh, on one occasion for a couple of weeks. Uh, I liked it very much. It was treated very nicely. Um, in some ways, I'm, I'm probably a, a closet uh, Slavophile. I like the Russian language. I work at it every day. I like um, Russian literature. Now, I, I've since heard you talk about the fact you've been back there several more times. Uh, what's your reaction of what you said in 89 and what's what's happening? Well, I, I would restate that I, I love the language and the literature and I, I do read or watch something in Russian every day. Um, What's what's changed is it's become more clear that even though the Soviet Union itself collapsed, if you still have the same mindset and have a, a dictator running the country and imposing um, economic order uh, as he sees fit and prioritizing the military as he sees fit, that this is not going to serve the interests of, of the people. Um, when I was at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, it was extremely uh, fulfilling and interesting for me 
because that bank was started in 1991 as a response by Western nations to to provide the means to finance a tra- transition for for the failing Soviet Union, soon to crash and be dissolved and disappear forever, to take those 15 newly independent republics that were formerly part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, to move them toward democratic institutions and free market economies. So in that, in my role, um, I wanted to do that, but it turned out by 2014, Russia had already invaded uh, Ukraine and taken Crimea. So then I wanted to end loans, and lucky for me, the bank also wanted to end new lending to Russia. That is now going on um, at hyper levels. The EBRD um, is helping Ukraine and then and, and I I just spoke uh, yesterday, in fact, with the Biden nominee for my former position. And we had a wonderful conversation. I said, this is exquisitely nonpartisan. You're just looking out for U.S. interests and you're going to have to fight for them at the EBRD. But already Europe is learning that you shouldn't depend on Russia for your energy supplies. And that was a message that I worked on very hard during my service. And I wished him well. And I think he'll do quite well, I hope. Um, but, but meantime, I, the lead economist for the EBRD was a brilliant Russian guy named Sergei Guryev. He's fearless. He had to flee Russia. He was one of the up and coming top economists. Putin knew well who he was and he had to, he was involved in testifying about whether the government's case against Kordakovsky was justified. And he found objectively it was not. The next thing he knew, he and his family were being harassed, and he thought he might even get arrested. Well, he ended up coming to to France. I I got to know him uh, in my role at the um, National Endowment for Democracy, and uh, he then took on the position of being chief economist for the EBRD. He has since left and now uh, is the most fearless person in saying there really is a true Russia of real Russians who don't go along with Putin, and and we blame ourselves that he's still in power, and we're doing our best. And this guy's a supporter of Navalny and some of the opposition activists who would like to counter uh, the autocratic approach taken by Putin and, and the people close to him. So there are some wonderful, brave Russian individuals, so I'll never malign Russia as as a country, even though I very much um, oppose and and resent what it's doing to the world and particularly to Ukraine. One other clip from that 1989 interview it kind of looks at it from the other side of uh, of the uh, between Russia and, and the West. The United States bears the brunt of the defense burden of the West. So to to U.S. citizens and to our leaders, it appears as if. At the same time, we are protecting Europe through our NATO commitment. They're undercutting us by giving this economic succor to the Soviet Union, which certainly enhances uh, the total amount of resources available to the Soviet Union. And uh, tapping into what I said earlier about the military sector, always having a priority claim on resources, um, I think in the United States we feel that uh, the Europeans are contributing to Soviet military potential and and we have to then match that concurrently in uh, defense costs to match any new escalation of soviet military capabilities your reaction to what you said 33 years ago it makes me more angry (laughs) that um the efforts of the u.s office of which i i headed um at the european bank for reconstruction and development and let me just say this bank uh provides um, billions in infrastructure financing to those former uh, Soviet Republic nations and a slew of other nations. And the U.S. is the largest contributor of capital. We have 10 percent of the capital. And, and yet the case that I kept trying to make on behalf of the United States that Europe was too dependent on Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, and I will say EBRD put $2 billion toward the Southern Gas Corridor, which would be an alternative way to deliver uh, energy 
to Europe. But nevertheless, um, the German director and the European Union directors felt that somehow this was um, just a U.S. fixation. Um, We could have financed uh, liquefied natural gas facilities to receive exports from the United States. We were energy independent and willing to sell LNG to Europe at what would become an increasingly um, uh, efficient, more viable uh, long-term cost to Europe. But they seemed um, unwilling to give up this reliance on Russia. And, And even though I think now it's clear that was a grave mistake, and they're all going to pay a terrible price. Uh, I'm looking, anticipating a difficult winter in terms of fueling expense in in Europe. Um, that was a case where I couldn't get enough allies to to join me in in countervailing the weight of the votes put forward by the directors from from Europe. Economist Judy Shelton, we are out of time. Thank you for uh, nominee 101. Uh, in the background on your nomination. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Brian. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 